So my guest this evening asks if we do the introduction live. And my answer to that is no, actually we don't, it's canned. <laughs> so welcome to uh, Old Town New World, the podcast that takes place in Old Town Rock Hill, South Carolina, here at Millstone Pizza. My name's Jason Broadwater, and we're going to talk about the ever-changing world of Small Town yeah. USA. With us today, we have a crowd of people. We have, um, of course, as always, behind the mic, Micah, Mr. Wise Micah. What do you have to say, Micah? Very well said, my friend. Very well said. We have David from Revenflow. Hello, David. I'm David from Revenflow. Good job, you said it well. we'll I'll coach you some more this evening. Um, we have Anil as well from Revenflow. Hello, Anil. Hello. Uh, we have Josiah's empty chair uh, in his absence. Hello, Josiah's empty chair. Nice. All right. And we have with us today Mr. Chris Clark from Charlotte, from Tillman Wright, attorney, from all kinds of interesting places. We'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Hello, Mr. Chris. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank Absolutely. you for inviting me. Of course, of course. So I know Chris because um, I could not find a uh, attorney, an attorney that could do uh, patent and IP and trademark kind of stuff in Rock Hill. And so I asked some attorneys in Rock Hill, and uh, you came highly recommended. Uh, so. So tell us about your profession. Let's start there. Well, so it's a it's a good thing that the podcast is long because I, <laughs> you know, I, I work with a lot of business clients and and uh, business clients, particularly startups. We always advise them. You know, you have to have your very concise description of what your what are your business is, what your business focus is. And I don't follow my own advice right, because it's Never. kind of a long. Uh, so so if I was if I was forced to give a very concise uh, explanation of what I do. I'm a business and intellectual property lawyer, All right. um, and so um, I started uh, my legal practice at a big firm. We had about 250 lawyers, and my work was uh, primarily corporate work, uh, working for Fortune 500 type clients. And I did that for about five years. And was that in Charlotte? It was, yeah, in okay. Charlotte. And then as I was um, you know, as I was growing in my career and kind of learning, uh, learning more about what it is I like to do and wanted to do, um, I decided that I was really more drawn toward or gravitated toward more um, sort of that startup, emerging, growing company type environment. Um, that was a lot more of what really uh, got me excited about doing legal work was being able to help people um, start up something new and grow it. Commercialize it, make something out well, of it. That's probably more of a market than ever these days, huh? Yeah, I, th I think so. And I, you know, interestingly, um, uh, about gosh, I don't know how many years ago now. But, you know, I think it was different years for different people. But sort of that period of 2009 to 2012, where it was a lot, it was really hard for a lot of people. Uh, we had a recession and uh, you know um, economic issues that yeah. were were going on. Um, one thing that happened in this region was a lot of big companies, particularly banks, started laying people off. Yeah, absolutely. And what happens when you have a workforce, when you, when you, when you have unemployed, talented, educated people, you get a lot of startup activity. Absolutely. 
and what um, I call the village economy is coming, baby. I hear you. What, so what, how, where did that come from, village economy? What I just call it that because it's like the idea of what you're talking about. Like, you know, the 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 big Bank of America system is kind of the feudal system. Like, you right. know, it's very few kind of, you know, principalities. And then you have the kind of uh, collapse of that. And then you have the birth of all these talented people that need to go to some type of village where there's connectivity and economy so they can be around other talented people and figure out how to provide value in the marketplace. That's right. And they have to kind of co-create their jobs or create their jobs or bring their jobs. they got to do all that. And, and that and all those people need to navigate the legal system, and I imagine that's a boon for what you do. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think our firm overall experienced the recession the way most businesses did in terms of, um, and partly that was because there was not a lot of investment dollars flowing. Right. There wasn't a lot of private equity or uh, angel funds or venture capital out there um, the way that there was before and I think there is again now, yeah. at least starting to be again now. Um, so we felt it in that respect. But yeah, you're right. I mean, we definitely, um, during that period of time, picked up a number of clients who were kind of like, look, I'm a, you know, I'm a manager level bank guy for 15 years and I have all of this expertise and a lot of ideas and a six-month severance package and yeah, I'm gonna right. take my shot you know Absolutely. Um, so so the, I mean the, the we, we can we can talk about a whole range of, of things and I think there's a lot of different topics that would be relevant that overlap between Law and what's going on in the legal industry and um, sort of the new economy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but um, the the consistent thing for me throughout my career, and this even dates all the way back to when I was an undergrad, was um, I've really always liked the area where creativity and the law overlap. Right. And so um, I was a music major when I was in college, and and. Uh, they had a, um, a music business program within the music department. So I elected to follow that and, and just really, I, I felt that um, there was a need out there in the music industry in particular for people who not only understood business, but also understood the music side of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And so, um, kind of carrying that forward into law school and beyond, um, a lot of the clients that I work with now are creating things. Yeah. Um, I still have a client base in the entertainment industry that includes music, film, TV, um, uh, web, interactive, things like that. Um, but also, uh, a lot of our clients are people who are creating inventions. They yeah. are inventing new things and commercializing new things. Yeah. And so. That whole, that's kind of just been the consistent theme because a lot of times people hear, okay, you went to uh, undergrad for music and how in the world did you end up as a business lawyer, right, you know? Yeah, right. But really when I explain it, it makes sense because my passion has always been helping creative people succeed in creating new things. Well, that's funny, man. You know, it's, it's funny how life works out. I mean, when I look back over my life, I think some job that I thought was so random that I had. I think, oh my God, that works perfect. Fits perfectly into like I needed that experience to be able to pull all this together. And I mean, uh, you, you've shared with me that you were um, while in Chapel Hill, and yep. that's you, you went to undergrad at. at the, I went to undergrad at Radford University, which okay. is a school up in Virginia. Okay. And then and then and then I had a few 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 years in between there when I was working actually in the music industry at um, 
Mammoth Records, and they had, yeah, they yeah. they had um, Mammoth Records had offices in L.A., New York, London, but believe it or not, their their headquarters was in Chapel Hill. That's awesome. It was started by a guy, uh, Jay Ferris, who was a Duke MBA guy, and when he was getting his MBA at Duke, his project was to start this record company. That's great. And. Um, in my opinion, you'd be insane to try to start a record company now because that industry has changed so dramatically right, since then. Yeah. But at the time, which was the late 80s when he started this, I think it was 88 or 89, um, you know, it was actually uh, a great time to start a record label. And he was very good at it and, and, and grew that label. Um, well, it had some great bands on it. Super Chunk, right? Well, Super Chunk was actually on Merge oh, that's Records. Okay. But... Um, but, but those guys, actually the whole Merge Records family, including Mac and Laura from Super Chunk and a bunch of other people, did they we would all... That label? They right? did. Okay. Mac and Laura did, yeah. We would all, we would all hang out and, yeah. and um, I mean, I don't want, I'm not trying to big time or drop names or oh, anything right, like yeah. that. I'm not best friends with them or anything right, like yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah. we would always, our paths would cross, you know, yeah. and, and we would support each other. And, Great. you know, Merge was always kind of the cool label that maintained their indie credibility. And my label, where I worked, Mammoth, was the label that sort of was viewed, I think, by some as like the sellout label oh, okay. because we were trying to get hit songs and we right, were trying yeah. to sell records and yeah. in addition to sort of trying to stay cool. Um, yeah, Squirrel Nut Zippers. That was yeah, one. yeah. We had Squirrel Nut. So, so our biggest selling acts were the Squirrel Nut Zippers and a band called Seven Mary Three. Oh yeah. Um, they were the ones that sold the most. But we had a bunch of also. We had a uh, Juliana Hatfield and her her band before that. Uh, Blake Babies were on our label and. I don't know. I think by the time it was done, we had put out over 150 wow, records while we were awesome. while we were there. And were these vinyl? Uh, definitely had vinyl, had cassettes, yeah, and nice. and there's newfangled CDs no, too. Yeah. CDs are. I hear those CDs <laughs> are going to be the next big thing. Um, right here. And and the to to kind of put a bow on that phase of my life because that was what I did between undergrad and law school. Um, we ended up selling the business to Walt Disney, oh, to the wow. Disney company. Oh, yeah, um, it, we, we were able to um, successfully um, take bands like Squirrel Nut Zippers and Seven Mary Three up to platinum selling artists, yeah, and wow. so that was very impressive for an independent label like us, and Absolutely. it really drew the attention of a lot of the big players in the industry. And so, um, toward the end of my days there. There were all kinds of people from any record label you can name, any big record label you can name. They all came to Little Chapel Hill, came to our office That's and talked awesome. to us and stuff like yeah, that. Cool. And again, I wasn't a major player in the deal or anything, but it was neat to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's part of what fueled my passion. Well, that's what I was going to say. That demonstrates all the legal necessities and legal needs and stuff that are inter intertwined in the creative industry. Very much so. Yeah, and and um, I mean, all that, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the news recently, and I and I'm so bad at pop culture news, but um, with uh, what's her name and Apple. Um, Oh, with Taylor know Swift more. and yeah, Apple, okay. yeah. Yeah, so like, there's so many legalities around new platforms and new... So the everything. thing I thought you were going to say was um, that Marvin Gaye's estate recently prevailed in a copyright infringement lawsuit against, uh, I think it was Pharrell and... Um, See now, I'm 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 not yeah, even right, as up on yeah. my facts anyway. But 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 one big thing. There's actually been two big cases recently. Another one was with um, Sam Smith and Tom Petty. Um, when someone comes out with a song now that sounds strikingly similar to a previous song, or at least a portion of it does, yeah. 
um, you know, what exactly do you have to show to prove that that's copyright infringement? And what does that entitle you to? And what right, happens? Yeah, um, and so, to me, that's really heady stuff. I mean, Are I think that's really. Are there a lot of really... precedents around that? It, not really, because it is such a case-by-case -case analysis. Oh, so you can't really carry a precedent forward. It's hard to. There are some. There are some hard and fast rules. For example, you know, copyright infringement really. It, it is what it sounds like, which means it is someone who is copying something. And so one thing you have to show is you have to have heard, in the case of music, you have to have heard the work that you're accused of copying. So if, um, if, if Sam Smith had never heard this Tom Petty song that he was accused of infringing, if they were able to somehow prove that he'd never heard it, then he would have a defense. I know, right? Yeah, right. It's, it's, it's difficult. Wow. There's also some other defenses to copyright infringement. One that you've most people have heard of is called fair use. And so there are certain cases where it's actually legally permissible for you to take a copyrighted work and use it for yourself huh. under certain criteria under the law. And so all of that, I mean, that's part of what attracted me to this area of the law is I think that that overlap is really interesting. What I stick with as a rule of thumb is... Dun 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 dun. Which ice, ice, baby. Yes, which Vanilla Ice uh, he, very clearly, I think, articulated the differences. He was shocked that that he was, didn't shocked, carry the I'm day. Shocked, dun, 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 dun. I mean, I hear what he's saying. Um, do y'all sit around and argue? Do y'all go dun 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 dun? dun, dun. We argue. Do you wear wigs and <laughs> argue like dun 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 dun? You can hardly get me to put on a tie, much less a wig. Um, but yeah, I mean, arguing is part of the game for sure. Yeah, we yeah. love it. We, and and interestingly, I actually, I like to discuss. Ah, oh, nice, uh, nice redirect there. I but I'm not actually. I, I'm. I, I think another reason that I'm drawn to the area of law that I practice is I'm actually not a big fan of conflict. I actually don't really like it. It doesn't. I don't. I don't. There are some lawyers, particularly ones that are drawn to the litigation side, yeah. that really feed off of that yeah. energy of the conflict and the fight. Yeah. Um, but I like it when I'm working with a group of people that are all rowing the boat in the same direction, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, trying to achieve a goal together. To avoid conflict. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of the things I encourage our clients to do is to really, you know, be proactive about things like. And this is for businesses of all size, but you know, just as important for a small business as it is for, for, for anyone, and just as important in a small town as if you were in a big metropolitan area, um, you wanna follow certain formalities. And what I mean by that is really make sure certain documents are prepared and yeah. buttoned up and followed um, from the very earliest stages of your company. Yeah to make sure that when it gets down the road and perhaps, believe it or not, this may surprise you, Jason, but there are times when people get together as business partners and start a business and they really love each other and they don't always continue what? to love each other. Weird, really? Yeah. It doesn't always work out. Wow. And sometimes businesses fail, if you believe that. What? Um, and so, you know, having good documents in place ahead of time can actually protect you and save you money down the road yeah. Um, and, and another thing that's really important, and I see this all the time, it's such a, a shame when, when, when a problem arises in this area, but you know, one, one service that we provide is providing a trademark protection and strategy to our clients. And so many businesses, I see them actually go ahead and enter the marketplace without first 
clearing or securing their brand. Yeah, right. And yeah, we've run into that with a couple of clients we've worked with. I'll tell you, I, I, I say this all the time. Um, some of the most unpleasant experiences I've been through professionally has been having to counsel a client through a rebranding process. Oh, yeah, right. A forced rebranding. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, yeah. we had, and this is no joke, I mean, we had a, a client who is a company that does um, like outdoor sporting goods, um, water sports type equipment um, that went to market under a brand and later found out that it was problematic and they had to destroy a warehouse full of inventory. Oh, that's terrible, man. Yeah. Well, I've started this new business called Sony. I yeah. want to tell you about it. Um, well, I... I'm gonna have to check that. It rings a bell. <laughs> it rings a bell. Yeah. So I mean, so, go ahead. That reminds me of a new service I'm offering, which is uh, I professionally Google brands to see if it already exists for you. So just um, call me up. Yeah, professional googling. Concierge googling is huge now. It's huge. Yeah. I'm gonna have to hire this guy away. That's a really at least page five before you know for sure. You do. That's true. I mean, I will, we will Google, if you need something Googled, we will Google it. Just email it over or write it down on a piece of paper, mail that to our office. We will Google that for you and we'll let you know what we come up with. Now, so I've got a little nuanced niche business that's sort of a subset of that is I actually use AltaVista oh, as wow. my search okay. engine. We because use a lot dog of people pile. Like, <laughs> a lot of people like a vintage search engine for trying <laughs> right. to determine. Dude, that's, that's hipster, man. Yeah. That's awesome. You're going vintage on search engines? With Dogpile, how could Dogpile ever have been successful with a name like Dogpile? I mean, I, I get it that like that's funny for like a few minutes, but if you name your company a pile of crap, like how can you ever expect that your company's going to be successful? I don't get that. I don't know. I would say it depends on the industry, really. Like if you're talking about beer, you're probably going to do pretty well. I think it would do well for like a week, and then people don't want to be associated with crap. Let, let me go ahead and say something negative about a North Carolina company. It's just to try ahead. to just just to try just to try to hurt my own reputation a little bit. Um, <laughs> it's actually a company I have a tremendous amount of respect for, but it's a company called Shatter Shield. That's the name of the company. They're very successful and great product and great people. I met some of them, but the name of the company is Shat S H A T dash R dash Shield, and I just always questioned that first. Yeah. So it's so the company's in the past tense, is what you're telling me. I get it seems like that, and that's kind of like with Dogpile. I wondered yeah. like, well, that's like uh, kids uh, kids sex change. Yeah, I'm, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not uh, sure how we got onto this. Yeah, right. That, Does anybody else have an, uh, any uh, <laughs> thing they'd like to submit? Oh yeah, Penn Island license plate. Penn Island is a big oh, problem. Yeah, yeah. PennIsland.com. <laughs> but um, so let me get back to. Yeah. You, you uh, went to undergrad in Virginia. Where are you from? I'm from Roanoke, Virginia. Okay. The star city of the South. A great place to grow up. Very beautiful, right in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And then um, I went to undergrad at Radford, which is just right down the road from okay. from there. It's um. How big a college? Well, it surprises people to learn there's actually 10,000 students oh, there because it seems it seems like a small college. It kind of has that small college feel. Um, so way back when. Um, Virginia Polytechnic Institute, Virginia Tech, was sort of the men's college and Radford was like the women's version of Virginia Tech. They're right, very close proximity to one another. And um, Radford was primarily known for teaching and nursing and Tech was more sort of the technical engineering side of things. 
they're all co-ed now, and they, you know, Radford has sort of a more liberal arts type curriculum, and Virginia Tech still does the engineering and technical type stuff. But that's that's um, that's how I tell people where Radford is. is okay. It's really right next to Virginia well, Tech. How did you know about Chapel Hill? So. Um, while I was at Radford, um, I got heavily involved in our campus radio station, um, and and uh, you discovered Chapel Hill punk rock. I got I already sort of knew that there was a lot going on there in, in Chapel Hill, but um, as a music director of the radio station, you see all this music, and there's so many bands coming out of Chapel Hill that we loved and played on our radio station all the time. I just knew that that was so you had a romanticized kind of vision. I very much did. I still kind of do, actually. Yeah, I um, I guess you went to the Cat's Cradle more than once. Many times, yeah, yeah many times. I saw times. Drive Like Jehu there one time. Um, <clears throat> I drove there <clears throat> with a friend. We got there, there was like probably 12 punk rockers that we knew standing outside who refused to go inside the venue because they were charging $7. Oh, corporate America yeah. taking over. <laughs> and so Scott and I went in and we paid our $7. Yeah. And went in. There was about eight people in there. And we stood up at the stage, and they put on a show like there were a hundred thousand people in the audience, and it was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. A lot. There's and for for that type of story that leaves a lasting memory on you for the rest of your life. There are thousands of those at the Cat's Cradle. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Because it really is one of the top clubs in the nation. It's yeah. just the right size. Frank Heath, the guy that runs it, is... Is he still running it? He's still running it. Wow. Actually, one of my former uh, colleagues from Mammoth Records works there oh, cool. doing promotion still. And they do a lot. They've got their main room now, but then they've also got a smaller room okay. in the back of the club where they do smaller shows. And they promote shows at other venues, even like at the amphitheater oh, and stuff cool. like that. Yeah. So they're doing a lot. But yeah, I love, love Chapel Hill, love the Cat's Cradle. And, and um, my, my radio job... My, my college radio job uh, got me an internship at Mammoth Records. Mammoth. Oh, okay. And cool. so that's how that kind of worked out. I so was able to get the internship. And and I I just, I worked for free until they had no choice but to hire me. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you learn your legal arguing, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I yeah. would just do anything. I'd answer phones, I'd do anything. Yeah. I, I remember, uh, I remember one, at one point, um, the, the founder of the label was moving from Chapel Hill to either New York or L.A., I don't remember which, I think L.A., and uh, was selling his house in, uh, in Chapel Hill. And so I helped, like, organize a yard sale to sell oh, a bunch right. of his stuff. And, and in his house were a bunch of the master tapes for the oh, albums that were released. So I cool. found, like, a, a, a climate-controlled storage facility to store these tapes. And so, you know... Those were all things I did at free right. when I was an intern, did, yeah. and just to try to, you know, convince them that it would be a good investment for them to hire me. Absolutely. So you did get hired. Eventually, I got hired, and not for a lot. There was nobody working there. Very many people that made much money. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, it was an amazing time to be in the music industry because it was just sort of the pre-Napster era. People were just sort of discovering like hey, it's possible to make these perfect digital copies of songs and yeah. pass them around for free. And people were just starting to burn CDs right, and things yeah. like that. So, so the height of the buy an album, buy a tape. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. like save, the, save your favorite band kind of thing. And uh, yeah. so that, that experience really, I think, was a perfect experience to have had for someone who hoped to serve 
in the creative legal business. Yeah, so you're arena. serving those very types of people. That's right. People who are doing what they're what they love, what they're passionate about, and they are not attorneys. They don't have command of the legal system. They need help. They need help. And and you know, I think that even still goes on today. I think there's and and this can sort of lead into a bigger topic that really is I think important discussion in the new economy but when you think about artists and my most of my experiences with musicians so I'll use musicians as an example really competent legal representation is almost prohibitively expensive for an artist Um, and there's such a disconnect cultural disconnect between the artist and the attorney in in their most like kind of um, generalized uh, stereotypical kind of totally because to to carry forward that stereotype lawyers don't understand musicians musicians don't understand lawyers they don't speak the same language it's almost considered I don't know if this is so much true anymore maybe it is a little bit but at the time it was sort of considered almost like uncool yeah to think about business oh, right, and yeah. lawyer well, stuff. Let me jump on that yeah. because that I think that is a fundamental shift, or maybe just para fundamental. Like if it's not if it's not core, it's a it's down there that is happening in our economy and in our world. Is this idea that the the creative person for so long has been a, a rejecter of the functional economy, right? And the functional economy has been. Uh, Stereotypes to be the kind of sucker, the virus of, uh, you know what I mean? Like yes, that. I know exactly. You're, it's very well said, actually. But the um, what's happening is, is that the creative individual, whether they're laid off from Bank of America and they've got an idea to start some type of interesting app or business or something, or whether they're a you know musician trying to actually be able to afford to have a baby and like have insurance, you know, there's a there's an entrepreneurism that is is kind of a cool creative endeavor yes. that ha- has to that has money, legal, commercial property, has all the traditional like industries of the suit, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Involved in it. You know? I, I think the startup in a way is sort of the new rock band. It is. Oh absolutely dude. And there's even parodies of that already. I mean, there's like yeah. all kinds of parodies of that. But 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 startup culture does embrace profit. You know, legal concepts. Um, you know, funding and and success, commercial success. But still, you can have long hair and wear a t-shirt to work, and you know, kind of that. That's that's the the parallel that I see. But you know, I, I do think to kind of bring it back around to artists, and and really, you can expand it beyond. It doesn't. I say artists because that's where I have the most experience. But really. Any kind of low-income population, yeah. I think there is a real unaddressed problem yeah. with how do those people get the same type of legal representation and protection well, that yeah, rich that's people real get. real interesting, but I think that there is a sharp difference between the person who um, has either the socio- a higher socioeconomic background or some type of educational opportunity or whatever, but is choosing to follow endeavor of passion um, and... and and therefore is kind of in that way locked out of kind of legal access stuff right, versus right. the disenfranchised citizen that n- never had access or the luxury to be in a band to begin with. I mean, you know what I mean? Like that's a yes. total different population. It is. I agree with you. Um, and and I, think, I think we're actually seeing the legal market overall 
adjust to the, the these types of issues because you see you know sort of self-help legal resources emerging like LegalZoom. Right. Um, you also see, I think, it's interesting because another facet to this same issue, and I'll, and I'll try to connect the dots as to how they're related in a minute, is law schools are actually graduating more lawyers than we need, than the market can bear. This week's episode ran kind of long and shifted gears in the middle, which is where we are right now. So we're going to pause it right here and pick back up next week in our conversation with attorney Chris Clark. Thanks for listening.